Hello, listeners. I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host, Am Johal, talks with David Lester, the illustrator of 1919, a graphic history of the Winnipeg general strike. David is also the guitarist of Mecca Normal and Horde for Two. Today, they discuss David's latest book, Profit Against Slavery, Benjamin Lay, a graphic novel as well as his unique mix of art and activism and his upcoming future projects. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again uh, this week. Uh, We have our very special guest, David Lester, with us uh, to talk about uh, the recently released book, Profit Against Slavery, Benjamin Lay, a graphic novel. And uh, really wonderful to have David with us to uh, talk more about it. Welcome, David. Wondering if you can start by introducing yourself uh, a little bit. Yes, uh, as you said, I'm David Lester. I'm a graphic novelist whose last two books were 1919, A Graphic History of the Winnipeg General Strike, and the book we're going to talk about today, which is uh, Profit Against Slavery, Benjamin Lay, a graphic novel. I'm also a guitarist in the underground punk rock duo Mecha Normal. We've released about 14 albums over the course of about 30 years. And uh, we've also been cited as an influence on the uh, feminist social movement known as Riot Girl. And I live in Vancouver. But yeah, I've, in fact, I've seen uh, Mechanormal play many times over the years, going back to the early 90s at the Anza Club. Might have even seen you at, at UBC, but also um, at SFU just a, a few years ago. Um, uh, you both played there as well. In terms of this project, um, wondering uh, where did it first of all start for you? This is, uh, in a way, bringing back to life an historical figure that, in many ways, was erased in in a number of ways. How did it? How did this project start for you? In terms of, there's so many topics you could you could take on. What what was it about this that spoke to you? <laughs> well, I had just done 1919, A Graphic History of the Winnipeg Strike, and I'd done that in, completed a 93-page book in 53 days. So try to imagine that, 93-page graphic novel in 53 days. Totally insane. But the publisher needed it by a certain deadline in order to get out for the anniversary of 1919. So I, what could I, could I do? Say, oh, I don't want to do it in this very important piece of history for Canada, and uh, it's uh, about the longest general strike in history. How could I not do this book? So I just, I did it. And the point is after the, uh, I finished it, I was like, ah, I need a break. And then Paul Buell, who I know via the Graphic History Collective, who wrote uh, 1919, he wrote to me and he said, oh, I've got a a book project I think you'd be perfect for. And it's about this guy, Benjamin Lay, and he's a, a radical Quaker. And and he sort of pitched it to me. And I was kind of like, uh, I've never heard of the guy. And uh, I don't know the book that it's based on by Marcus Redeker. And I, I wasn't keen because it, I didn't know much about the 18th century and that, the, a whole bunch of issues. And I kept putting roadblocks in the way of it. But Paul was very persistent and kept trying to remove those roadblocks. And eventually, uh, when I read Marcus Redeker's book, I, was, I thought, this is fantastic. What a, a, char- what a character. What, uh, what a story. It was a history I was completely unaware of. And um, I thought, yes, I, I've got to do this. So who, who needs a rest when you can do another book? So <laughs> I, um, that was the start of it. And of course, you know, the thing is, you know, I, I, I basically took Marcus's book and turned it into a script. And the way you do a graphic novel is very much like a film script. So everything is broken down into scenes and uh, 
I wrote that, and uh, and then we did back and forth with Marcus and Paul, and they c- contributed their ideas to it and changes, and and it was great because they they were like, okay, drop this scene, move that scene over there. They were great collaborators, and they made the piece stronger. And so this is the the greatness of collaboration. So that was the origin of, of why did I end up doing this book was. Uh, uh, sort of a, a bit fluky, and they at the time they didn't even have a publisher. They they were gonna they had a bunch of ideas, and it ended up being on Beacon Press. And you know you never know where these projects are gonna go or or how they're gonna turn out. So yeah, that that uh, I, I'm I'm still like stressed out by your writing deadline. I was just down in uh, Portland this last week, and I had a drink with uh, Joe Sacco, who's a graphic journalist, and uh, he was just uh, you know talking a lot about the 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 labor intensive nature of the work where it's like literally working for years on a, a book before it comes out. He did paying the land and uh, is currently working on a, a project on a, a communal riots in, in India. So this figure of, of Benjamin Lay, um, what, can you set him up as a, as a figure? So you read the biography and uh, what is it a, a, about him that you found particularly um, interesting in terms of, you know, to, to bring, this figure back to life, who's in many ways has been uh, forgotten in so many, um, so many histories. Yeah, well, I mean, his story is actually is remarkably contemporary, because he was a a white guy who called out the white community of Quakers that he was a part of. And it's kind of what uh, you hope that all white people have the courage to do, which is to step up to be allies to be call out the racism of their community. And and he did this, you know, 300 years ago. So you can imagine it was a time when slavery was looked upon by most people of European descent as natural and normal. And so it was in this milieu that he he took up this struggle that lasted decades. And I thought that was, you know, I don't know of anyone else. I can't say anyone else. And we have to realize that he did his struggle against slavery about 100 years before what we believe to be modern you know, the activists, the, the, the major people we are aware of. And if we go back to uh, why he has been lost to history, a lot of it has to do with the fact that he was a dwarf and uh, he was uneducated. He was working class. He came from this very poor family in, the, in England, in Essex. And um, he didn't fit the, the, the persona that is often written about in history as something you should respect because people look down upon him. And uh, so part of it, when the history books were written, they didn't really want to deal with this guy because he, uh, he was also, he used guerrilla theater as his method of, uh, of uh, confronting the congregations who were, who were, who were uh, engaged in slavery. And, uh, and none of these methods, they were all, I guess, considered a bit uncouth or something. And so, uh, and the way he looked, so he was marginalized. And so that's why uh, he has kind of been lost to history for 300 years and and why it's important to do this book and to, to at least uh, bring him back into the narrative uh, when we look at uh, the uh, America's legacy of racism. So, 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 take us back to this historical moment of the the 18th century. You referred to like you know kinds of guerrilla theater that he was involved with, but what form did his agita- agitation take, and how did he resist and organize in his specific time? Well, I, I should probably first set it up a bit. Like uh, Benjamin Lay 
uh, as I said, grew up in England, came to America, settled in New England, and um, he was a um, a radical Quaker in the 18th century. His family background was was Quakerism, and as we know, Quakerism came out of the mid or so century, 17th century, out of the fervent of the English Civil War and uh, the upheavals around that. And so they were very radical at the time, uh, originally. And um, so, so, so Benjamin um, was also a vegetarian. He was also, uh, 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 you know, against, uh, uh, he was for animal rights. He was uh, for the environment. He believed in equality between men and women. And uh, he also War, uh, spoke out against wealth and greed and uh, warned us that to be aware of a rich man who, quote, poisoned the earth for gain, end quote. And he also um, advocated boycotts of products such as tea and sugar and coffee and tobacco that was made by enslaved people. And as I said before, he did all of this 300 years ago. I mean, we're still arguing now about whether climate change is real, whether we should do anything about it, whether systemic racism exists and should we do anything about it? Well, he was doing these things 300 years ago. He was concerned with these issues. And um, and so that is another reason it makes him rather extraordinary. Um, and so if we go to what were his methods? Well, he used what we would now call guerrilla warfare. I mean, sorry, guerrilla theater. He, Benjamin Lay used guerrilla theater um, uh, in his uh, activism. And so uh, a few examples which I have in the book, which are uh, that he would go to uh, a Quaker meeting uh, and uh, he would be in the congregation and he would just stand up and confront the ministers on the platform, he would accuse them of being slave owners. And uh, this was not done. You, you were supposed to be, as a Quaker, quite quiet. And, and uh, silence is very important. And, uh, and to do this outburst, uh, it totally freaked people out. And they, uh, they did not react well to it. But he was not going to stop uh, having these confrontations with with the ministers in the uh, in the um, in the friends meetings of the Quakers, um, so one one day he um, he filled a a um, a Bible full of uh, red juice and he walked into the congregation. He had a big coat on, and and then at one point he stood up and flipped the coat off, and it was revealed that he had a sword underneath, and he took the sword out and dramatically stabbed the book, the Bible, and uh, the um, juice. Splurt out, uh, spilled out onto nearby people, and so it was essentially a guerrilla uh, theater action. Of uh, they had blood on their hands, on their uh, and that was the symbolism of it. And of course, he was dragged out and thrown on the ground, and that happened over and over again. And I must point out that he was fifty-five years old when he did this, and so uh, I would like to say it's an encouragement. You do not need to be a, in your twenties to be an activist and to be a radical. You can, you can. Be 55. You can start when you're in your 50s or 60s. It's never too late to do that. And so that's another thing I think of the book as being kind of meant to be an activist book that is, is meant to be encouraging. So um, another uh, example of his guerrilla theater was he, he, he met a meeting that was coming out of uh, a congregation was coming out of a meeting and he was uh, standing in the snow with one leg completely naked and to the cold. And it was again to shame 
the slave owners in the congregation who treated their enslaved in in these horrible ways and uh, and and uh, so a lot of what he did was about shaming. Uh, one time, he was whipped by a minister because of his actions in the in the uh, in the congregation, um, and uh, he he uh, he also did again protesting against the um, against uh, tea that was cultivated by enslaved people. He smashed teacups in a city square, so he did these things that. You know, we we often associate with the the 1960s or the 1970s or a, 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 the actions of Yippie or whatever, and and um, but he was doing that again centuries ago, and uh, it, it's another fascinating aspect of his life. <laughs> now he had he had a friendship with uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was a, a slave owner, and, and he also commissioned a, a portrait of him. Franklin was even uh, pushed uh, to to free the slaves uh, that he owned by uh, Benjamin Lay. What did you know about this dynamic between them? Well, we know th- the trouble of doing a book that's about <laughs> three centuries ago is there isn't a lot of information about those kinds of details. So in some cases, one has to, to, you know, uh, you know, make up certain things about what did people say and do at the time, because we have uh, scant information. So we know the basic details of his relationship with Benjamin uh, Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was a publisher. And uh, when uh, he, he agreed to publish Benjamin's, only book, but he didn't, as far as I know, didn't put his name on it because he didn't want to be associated with it. He was worried about his own contacts in in uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, and so, and I, I think uh, we don't know much more about what they talked about or said. We know only a little bit, and I put what I had in the book, so uh, I can't answer the details of of you know how that came about. Yeah. Uh, so, so you you based um, uh, uh, your book on 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 uh, on, on some of uh, Marcus Redeker's biography, and I'm wondering if you can speak to how the creative process uh, worked for you in in this um, context, in terms of doing a, a graphic novel based uh, from a from a biography from someone else. Did you work collaboratively with them, or did you have your own? process that you tried to pull out the pieces that would work in this in this form well yeah i had to take uh marcus redeker's book called the fearless benjamin lay and carefully read the book and divide uh and make those kind of um editorial decisions what would make what would i want it to be in the graphic novel what what works what doesn't need to be there and so you're constantly editing uh yourself through the whole thing and you you started constantly deleting scenes because you you just can't only you can only do so much in a graphic novel it's very uh limited on that level in terms of the page count and and uh so I picked what I thought was the dramatic aspects of it that told Benjamin Lay's story. And that's when I went back and forth with the script. Before I started drawing, I created a script and it went back and forth with um, Marcus and Paul. And and we probably did that about uh, four or five times. So we did four or five drafts of the script before I started to draw anything. And then after that point, then I have to do the visual research of what life was like in the 18th century. And uh, Benjamin Lay was a poor person, and uh, there aren't 
a lot of references to uh, visual references to 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 poor people. There are some, and I found some sketchy kind of drawings that aren't credited. But there's also the work of Hogarth and uh, and a few others. But a lot of the art that comes out of a time period like that is art for rich people and the people who can afford to pay for portraits. And so that's what you have. In, and I'm talking about you know what did someone's hat look like? What did what did they um, what did their shoes look like? What did, what kind of coat did they wear? Um, what was it made of? And these are the kind of details, what kind of uh, cups they had, what utensils they used. So when you're doing a graphic novel, you really have to, it's like, a, again, like a film, you have to s- dress a set with all these things. And you, you so the research takes up a great deal of time uh, before you can even, again, start the drawing process, which is very intensive, but, um, but, uh, there is so much to deal with. I mean, it's so much easier to do something in the 20th century, obviously, because of the documentation. Um, and so there is a limitation. There's also the landscapes. What did, you know, it, it wasn't modern day cities quite like we have now. So, and and Benjamin Lay was unusual in that he lived in a cave. And so that presented certain problems of what does it look like to live in a cave 300 years ago? And uh, I, I had, again, when we're talking about Benjamin Franklin, how much detail do we have? Well, we have a little bit of information about his cave. And I went with what I had and uh, did the best I could in terms of trying to present what that would have looked like. And and there is an actual picture I found where they believe it was Benjamin's cave that still exists in in Pennsylvania. And so I took that as a starting point of cave. This was the cave opening. This is what the land looked around it immediately. And uh, I went with it from there. But um, it's a bit, it's a, it is a really, uh, as you were mentioning Joe Sacco earlier, he's, it's, it's a very intensive process. And uh, uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a job. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to ask you about, you know, you've done a number of graphic novels. And, you know, what draws you to that um, uh, form of creative expression? And also, like, who are the the people that you're inspired by who are doing this work or what artists or artistic movements are you inspired by in, in your approach to uh, graphic novels? Well, when I, I was gr- growing up, I, I just like drawing and I like comic books and I, I like classics illustrated, which took very ser- serious books and made them into uh, a comic book form. And, uh, I uh, and I liked I liked all kinds of art and uh, eventually I started to uh, through an older brother who was a radical 60s radical I started to discover um, uh, politics and he had a vast collection of books that I had access to and so uh, and also to music which is very important of of hearing people who mix politics and art and that has been a lifelong thing that's has, uh, come through my um, my existence. And so in the early days, it was a lot of the folk music like Phil Oaks and, and Joan Baez and then uh, Tom Paxton and those types of people and where they told political stories through song. And that narrative really spoke to me in the sense of, I thought, yeah, well, I'm learning a lot here about the, about the civil rights movement, about uh, anti-war protests in Vietnam. And, and then I realized, well, that's if, if I had a life to live, that would be the one I would like to live that was uh, involving those sorts of things. And so out of that came to me a, per- a perfect uh, convergence, which is is um, my uh, love of comics and 
and politics and the combining of art and politics together and what can be accomplished with that. And so that's kind of sets the scene for everything I've done in my life and, uh, and to, to wanting to do these, these uh, books, which, um, you know, I was uh, meeting with some uh, history teachers, high school history teachers, and they're telling me that students are increasingly unable to read longer texts like books. And so they're finding that graphic novels are essential in the teaching process of history. And so we have to remember that these students will perhaps be the future union leaders, the future uh, radicals, the future activists, the, the, the future Benjamin Lays. And so I feel like when we talk about activism, uh, I think graphic novels are a key part of the future of activist art in terms of visuals and text and visuals. So there's so much you can do with it. And, and that's kind of where, uh, where I, I came out of. And, and of course the people I really admire are the people working in that, in that way, such as, uh, Joe Sacco, all the work he's done is, what can I say? It's just brilliant. And, uh, and people like Nate Powell, who, who did the March series about Congressman John Lewis, uh, um, he's a, he's a great guy and he, he also does brilliant work and, um, and he's a committed activist. Uh, and, uh, Kate Evans, who did the great biography of Rosa Luxemburg and, and, uh, Hoche Anderson in, uh, in Toronto, uh, I think he's based, who did the one on Martin Luther King, uh, biography. And, uh, so, uh, Jason Lutz, who's one of my favorites, who did the uh, book on, uh, called Berlin, it took him 22 years to do that book. And, and it's incredibly nuanced uh, politically and socially. And uh, to make a book so compelling that is about uh, the minutia of political parties and elections in 1920s Germany is remarkable feat and culturally and everything uh, that he, he fits into it. So uh, those are just some of the, you know, there's a whole ton of people doing great work. And, uh, and yeah. so what can I say? Yeah, I wanted to, to um, ask you about, you know, you coming into doing a project like this, you clearly have had long um, uh, 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 political um, involvements and, and also in the, the cultural scene in, in Vancouver. So I am not going to let you get away from this interview without saying what Mechanormal is up to um, uh, these days. And if you could uh, give an update on, 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 on that and also kind of where um, the, the band came from and, and all of that uh, for, for a new generation of, 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 of listeners that we, we have that, that might not have um, heard of it. But also we were talking previously about solidarity in BC and you mentioned that you're writing for the Solidarity Times uh, uh, newspaper, uh, but wondering if you could talk about those two things. Well, um, as far as Solidarity Times goes, it was uh, during the 1983 um, strikes in British Columbia. And uh, uh, I was a, uh, a graphic designer and I worked on various newspapers, including prior to that on the international uh, anti-authoritarian newspaper called Open Road in the late 1970s. And, uh, and uh, I'm primarily a designer. Uh, and so when it came to the labor movement uh, deciding they wanted their own media, their own press for the, during the strike, um, they enlisted various people. And uh, one of them was a person who said, oh, well, we need a designer and we should get, get this guy. And so that's how I became involved in that. And um, uh, because I had a long, this, this history of uh, publication design. And as, uh, 
as far as Mechic Normal goes, we started in about 1984, and it was because I met Jean Smith while working at a newspaper in Vancouver. She was a uh, worked in the production part uh, department as well, and uh, and so we started just hanging out and going to uh, a lot of hardcore punk rock shows and stuff like that. And we got kind of tired of just seeing the same kind of four guys on stage making a lot of yelling and noise and and stuff. And and we like that noise, but. But it was like, where's the women? What's happening here? And uh, why does it all sound kind of the same? And again, no dissing of it. I, I, I love all that music and stuff. But um, we just thought, well, why don't we do our own band? And we'll just do the two of us. We'll just have a distorted punk rock guitar and a wild vocals. And we'll, you know, it'll be political and it'll be feminist and, and all this. And so Gene was like, yeah, let's, let's do this. And so... So we started doing that and writing our own songs and um, playing shows around uh, town. And we realized kind of that uh, it wasn't that accepted because we didn't have the standard format of bass and drums. And again, I have nothing against these things, but we were trying to do something different, something more challenging. And uh, and so there was a certain amount of resistance to what we were doing. And we decided to leave town and just kind of tour and uh um, and we did these tours called the Black Wedge, which were uh, various political poets and musicians and minimalist uh, musicians. And and uh, we did the West Coast and we met, uh, ended up meeting Calvin at K Records. And he he loved what we were doing. And he, he sort of said, well, I'd like to put a record out. And anyway, we put our own record out first. And then we did a whole series of uh, records with K Records. And and then we went on to Matador Records and Kill Rockstars and uh, Sub Pop uh, did a single of ours, and um, and so that was the trajectory. But our, um, you know, we were trying to shake things up. And uh, Gene's lyrics are really these. Um, there's talks about a lot of feminist uh, related subjects and uh, social justice issues, and uh, and that's and that's where we, we were coming from. And we've maintained that all of these decades later. And uh, if all goes well this year, we are supposed to be playing three shows with uh, Bikini Kill um, in uh, in the Pacific Northwest. So, but we'll see what what's happening in terms of things. So uh, that's where it's at right now. So we've been a bit sidelined because of the um, because of the pandemic. So, but uh, we have worked consistently through these decades. Um, uh, I'm wondering in terms of uh, writing projects, I know this one just came out in in November of 2021, but do you have uh, future uh, projects that you already have irons in the fire or want to do that have been uh, on hold in terms of uh, of, uh, graphic novel projects? Oh, yes. Um, I I have about two weeks to go for another graphic novel uh, uh, called Under the Banner of King Death, which is Pirates in the Atlantic. And it's based on uh, Marcus Redeker's uh, book, Villains of All Nations. And uh, and again, uh, with this one, it was a bit different because Marcus did a a, uh, treatment of it, of his book, a kind of a uh, outline of it. And then I wrote the script from there and then we went back and forth. But but I've been working on that the past year and uh, over a year, and that is just about to be finished and it'll be published in uh, early 2023. And I've also uh, got another one that I'm about to start uh, based on uh, Marcus's book, The Many-Headed Hydra. And uh, that was uh, one part of the book, which is an uprising by the enslaved and uh, indentured Irish in the uh, latter 18th century. 
And uh, again, a little a little known story, but it uh, is it's quite uh, compelling in terms of the the people from below rising up to uh, to try to break uh, the the you know the the chains that they were working under in terms of their lives. And so that's happening. And I also just recently put out an album in, with my other duo called Horde of Two with Wendy Atkinson. And it's, um, a, 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 it, it's an album which features a 22-minute piece about the life of the Spanish anti-fascist anarchist Derudi. And uh, it's a, essentially uh, totally the opposite of doing these graphic novels. It's, it's an instrumental biography. So you, with a few words, but you kind of have to... <laughs> kind of have to go with it on that level and and we did a chat book that goes with it as well so it's a book album thing so that just came out like last week or something so so those are the things that for the moment that are ha- and also the long-term prep plan is that i've been working for many years on a uh, uh, biography of emma goldman who was a uh, uh, revolutionary and anarchist who died in toronto in 1940 and so i cover the last year of her life um and and the thing is, I'm so fascinated by biographies like Benjamin Lay and Emma Goldman. It's just how did they maintain this stamina? You know, uh, Benjamin Lay uh, was fighting against um, for the abolition of slavery for about, I don't know, 30 years or so until he died. Um, and Emma Goldman was a, uh, a revolutionary activist for 50 years until the moment she died. And the thing is, with her, it was like, how can she maintain interest in doing this when she she realized that her ideals will never be realized in terms of a, uh, an anarchist society. Um, uh, why continue? Like, how do you handle that? And, uh, and so with my book, I try to answer that question. And, uh, but I'm still working on it. It's three quarters of the way done. So that's another project, which probably is not a few years away. Wow, your creative output is so inspiring. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, anything uh, you'd like to add, David? Well, I wanted to say again about why do a book on uh, on Benjamin Lay um, that he did. He he actually succeeded in what he was doing. He didn't completely see it in his in his lifetime before he died. But Quakers, because of his work and others. Uh, uh, the Quaker community in New England became the first one in America to abolish slavery, and and I think of that as being quite um, quite uh, uh, incredible that he had that impact. And part of the reason it took so long was because uh, it, it it needed young people to become part of the the um, congregation to kind of as old people died off. The young people kind of were more open to Benjamin's ideas and also the idea that actually, which he put forward, which was the idea of slavery was was violence. And Quakers are opposed to violence of any kind, wars, uh, killing people in, in any way. They're opposed to that. So why would you live a life where you are committing violence against individuals on a daily basis? And so that was Benjamin's argument. And uh and so younger people were more receptive to that. And so gradually, that's why the Quaker community changed and it evolved um, to see the end of slavery in, in that uh, community. And, and also, remember, he, he was also fighting the Quaker establishment, which at, at that time, 
was very powerful politically. They were the governors. They were the the, the government ministers who were enabling uh, slave owners to function and uh, making it easy for them to uh, to hunt down um, escaped uh, enslaved. And so he was he was uh, not just against the congregation. I mean, up against them. He was up against the establishment, the 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 hierarchy that ran government. And so that makes again his it it, it 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 quite interesting to to bring him back into into the narrative. And I must add that um, in the only book that Benjamin wrote, which as you mentioned before, Benja, uh, Benjamin Franklin published for him, uh, Benjamin uh, Lay uh, warned us warned the reader that if if slavery wasn't abolished immediately, it would. Um, that this that this legacy of racism would haunt America profoundly haunt America, and I and I think uh, three centuries later that uh, it, it, his words are not wrong because I think the legacy of racism in America is 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 where we're at right now, and uh, and so so I think again he he his words ring con- in a contemporary way to try to explain our own situation by looking at the past. Uh, David, thank you so much for bringing this wonderful book to life, and and it's it is so timely and and poignant, and and thank you for sharing uh, the work uh, here on Below the Radar. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with David Lester. Head to the show notes to learn more about the books, bands, and resources mentioned by David. We release episodes every Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe to Below the Radar on your podcasting platform of choice to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar. Below the Radar.